0: the churches I attended as a child and well into my young adulthood were hyper-focused on John 3:16. it's one of the first verses I memorized when I was a young boy in Sunday school for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life everlasting life That's the old King James Version, a little bit different from the one you just heard a moment ago, but it's the way I memorized it. And like I said, in those churches, they were hyper-focused on John 3.16. I didn't hear the entire story of Nicodemus and all the full context of where that verse appears until I was in seminary. I never really had encountered it. I never heard it read in in a worship service. I hadn't read it myself, or if I did, I hadn't remembered it at all. In fact, it was seminary before I realized that the way I was taught John 3.16 and the meaning behind it was not accurate. I was in my 20s, my late 20s, before someone pointed this out to me. It used to be that Tom Long's a good theologian, he says that John 3.16 was often interpreted in many churches, especially in the South where he grew up, with a sort of crisis theology, sort of a, in his words, a blood-saturated theology. You better turn your heart to Jesus now. Or you better believe in Jesus, and if you don't, you're going to suffer eternal torment. That was the basic theology I heard too. That's the way it was taught, turn or burn. But it's fascinating if you listen to the entire text and hear the story as it unfolds, we find that it's something else completely different. What was the last verse that Tracy just read? For God did not send God's Son to condemn, but to save there, there is a crisis theology here, but the crisis is not that God is up in heaven somewhere waiting for you to make the right choice, to believe the right things, to finally figure it out and, and give your heart to Jesus and accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. No. The crisis is God is coming to us. God is coming to you. That's the promise. It's a, it's a beautiful promise. it, it It is the full description of the grace of God, of the goodness of God, of the love of God. But sometimes, sometimes even that can be frightening. Even that can cause us to feel like we're in crisis. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night for a conversation. Note this, I'll get back to this later, but I want you to see that oftentimes throughout the Gospel of John, things happen in the light of day and in the dark of night. John often is making a a very serious theological point here. The fact that Nicodemus comes at night is a hint to us that maybe Nicodemus is frightened or worried, embarrassed maybe, upset. There might be something tugging at his soul, something going on in his heart and mind. And that's why he comes to Jesus at night for a conversation. It's shrouded in mystery and uh, sort of the question of what's really going on. By the way, the text says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. We hear that word, in fact, you can look it up in a dictionary. Uh, We hear that word in our English language, and we think of somebody who's judgmental, who's holier-than-thou, sort of sanctimonious and hyper-religious. Well, there were Pharisees like that, just like there are people today in Christianity who are like that, and in Judaism, and in Islam, and just about any religion has super-sanctimonious, holier-than-thou folks. The Pharisees, for the most part, in Jesus' day people like us. Educated, kind, caring, tithing, people who cared for their, their friends and neighbors. In Jesus' day, a Pharisee was somebody you wanted to know. Usually, most of the time, they were highly respected. So this respected teacher, this man of faith, comes to Jesus at night, and, it, and it's fascinating the way that the conversation unfolds. He comes and says, uh, now, uh, Lord, we, we know that you must be from God because only one from God could do what you do. It's like he's wanting to get into a theological conversation. It's as though he wants to, to get Jesus to talk with him about these deep, serious uh, theological ideas. And, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't doesn't fall for it all. He doesn't get into that. Now, there's nothing wrong with those kinds of conversations. I still have them with my wife, Julie. Sometimes they go late into the night. I remember when I was in seminary, 25 is when I started. I still had braces, but I wanted to look older. Isn't it funny how when you're younger, you want to look older and when you're older, you can't believe that anyway. I, I grew a beard and I started smoking a pipe and I tried to talk like this and have serious conversations. That's kind, of what, that's kind of what Nicodemus is doing. Maybe I don't know if he has a beard and a pipe or not, but he wants to get into one of these, these self-important conversations with Jesus about things that really matter, theologically speaking. Jesus sees that there's something else going on. I think that's why John lets us know that this conversation happens in the dark at night. There's really something else happening in Nicodemus's life. Have you ever had a conversation with someone like that before? Where you just knew, you, maybe it was your spouse, your husband, your wife, best friend, a, a child or a parent, and you just knew, they're kind of wandering around and they're not really, you're not really sure exactly what they're talking about or it's all surface level or it's nice and complimentary. You know, Nicodemus offers Jesus a compliment, but you just know inside there's something else happening. I remember uh, a couple coming to see me. I was going to do their wedding. They weren't members of the church I was serving, but that church, like this one, welcomes people to come in and, and, and allows them to be a part of our ministry and, and have one of our pastors be their uh, officiant for their wedding. And that church, like this one, also did the Prepare and Enrich premarital uh, counseling program, a very, very helpful inventory that helped couples see their strengths and their growth areas. And so I met with this couple, and we were going through the Prepare and Enrich inventory, but I had that, that nagging feeling just kind of pulling on me. There's something there just... We went to the strengths, we're going to the growth areas, but there's something, I just knew something was there. I couldn't get quite to it. Our session went long, about 90 minutes, should have been an hour. As they left, the bride turned right there in my office door. I can still see her, turn around and said, "Um, my my fiance's been addicted to cocaine for a long time and he was so high last week he passed out in his car and parked on the side of the road and, and slept. Do you think that's a problem? <laughs> I said, perhaps. Come on back in. Yeah, that's, that's what's going on with, with Nicodemus. He's come to see Jesus, but there's something else. He sees in Jesus a life that he wants. There's something about the way that Jesus is living his life. In, in John chapter 2, for example, right before John 3, Jesus goes to the wedding at Canaan. You remember this story. They, they run out of wine. It's going to be an embarrassment for the couple. And what does Jesus do? Oh, just quietly. No fanfare. Doesn't make a big deal about it. Water is changed to wine. and The party continues. It, John says that was the first of his signs. Look at that sign. It's Jesus about making sure we can celebrate and enjoy. To enjoy each other. It was 180 gallons of wine. So it was going to be a serious enjoyment party as far as that goes. And then right at the second half of John chapter 2, it's that story of Jesus in the temple overturning tables. He, with anger, he, he pushes all the sellers out of the, out of the temple. Now people think, oh, that means you're not supposed to sell things in church. That's not what it means. In that portion of the temple, that's where the folks from the outside, foreigners, outsiders, non-Jews could gather to hear the psalms being sung, the prayers being offered. It was a place where, where the, the one from another country could come and stand and hear the, the worship taking place inside the temple. And it's been taken over by people who are selling all these things. And that's, that's why Jesus is irritated. I don't know for sure, but I wonder if Nicodemus has seen this and seen this, one, this is one. This is one who is inviting us to a new way of life. So Jesus gets into the conversation. And he says, now, now Nicodemus, let me be clear. You need to be born from above. Now Nicodemus is smart. Maybe he intentionally misunderstands. I don't know. But he says, how can one be born again? That's the way it was in the old King James. How can one be born again? What's really going on here? And then Jesus says a few more, and he gets to verse 7, and the grammar changes. No longer is it just Nicodemus and Jesus, you and you and you having a conversation. It's now the you changes to all y'all. it's It's as though Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus up on the stage, and then he turns out to the congregation, to the disciples, and in some sense to us, and says, now, don't be surprised, all of you, that I said you must be born from above. For the spirit goes where the spirit goes. The wind blows wherever it will. God is like that, and that you must be born again in that way. You must be given a new life in that way. Born from above is an invitation to allow ourselves to be defined by the idea that we are already God's children. That God's love has already been given to us. God's love goes wherever it wants. It goes here, there, and some, eventually it's going to come through you and you'll be invited in some mysterious way to let that love inform you and how you live. You know, the the last 150 years or so uh, of evangelical Christianity in the United States has gotten that message confused. It was Tony Campolo, the great Baptist evangelical preacher, who said, we sometimes misunderstand Jesus' message. Jesus' message was not about how to make our way into heaven. how to to, to get into heaven, Jesus was more concerned and always concerned about how we live today, how we can together transform the world today in this place through the power of love, through the courage of faith, through the goodness of grace in, in our families, in our communities, even in our world. That's what Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand. It's an invitation to this new life, to this new way of being. Now, I mentioned the way that John uses light and dark in, throughout his gospel. Nicodemus comes at night. John wants us to see that in the night, things are confusing, things are difficult. In the night, we can almost pretend like the things we never want to be exposed to light almost aren't there. My, my joke, my standard joke is in the darkness I have thick dark brown hair which is kinda silly because even when I had hair it was strawberry blonde and by the time I was in college I knew it was, it was going away and was gonna be gone for, forever. Well, that's a silly illustration but think about this, think of it this way. I remember a, a college group coming to my dad's church on a mission trip in the summer back in the 1970s they were coming to do some rehab work in some of the tougher neighborhoods. They would go into these dilapidated houses and they would tear them apart and, and, and help the, the owners or or help somebody find their way into that house so they could have a decent, safe place to live. I, I remember helping one, one of the work groups one day and going into this dilapidated house and we we're all looking around for light switches. Well, there's no power. There's no light at all. It's very dark, even though it's the middle of the day. I walked over to the kitchen and there were some, uh, to the uh, living room window rather, and there were some curtains there and I pulled them wide open and, and light, sunlight, just filled the room and unfortunately it also pointed out that there were rats and roaches everywhere and what did they do though they scattered away they ran and hid you see that that's that's what that that's why sometimes the crisis of God coming to us of Jesus coming to us is difficult because it means that somebody's going to open the curtains of our soul It means that we're going to have to look at our full self, not in fear, not in worry, not that somehow God's going to to get after us for not doing the right thing or believing the right thing. No, no, no. But that we'll be invited instead to live in that light, to let that light show us the way on how we might live within the world. That's the invitation being given it could feel like a crisis. John Buchanan was a great preacher at at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago for many years. He tells the story of of baptizing a child, but on this particular day, the child is two years old. It's a two-year-old little boy. They go down on the chancel and the deacon comes up with the water and and Pastor John takes his hand and baptizes the little boy. uh, You are a child of God, he proclaims. Takes a little more water Puts his hand on the little boy's head. You will be comforted by the Spirit. Third time, a little water. And you now belong to Jesus Christ. And the two-year-old boy said, uh-oh. <laughs> I love that story because he's speaking for us. You now belong to Christ. We are a part of Christ's family. We are a part of the family of God. And that's an uh-oh experience because that means somebody's going to rip open those curtains and let the light come bathing all of us it is an invitation from the very foundation of grace itself I've told some of you about the time that I was the theologian in residence at the Riverside Christian Church in Sweet Home, Oregon. My friend Skip Stock was a leader in that church. Skip had, uh, was a was in the lumber business. His family owned a lumber mill there in, in Sweet Home. And in the midst of that work, though, as an adult, he decided to go to seminary and became a youth minister in Southern California. That's where I first met him when I was in junior high. He ran the Christian church camp that our youth group went to every summer for a week or two. And I just thought Skip was the coolest guy ever. He was just cool and hip and fun but at some point he just got burnt out on church and a few years later he went back to Sweet Home and got back in the lumber business. And his home church, the one that he'd grown up in, had sort of transformed from this sweet, kind, gracious community into this angry, mean, very judgmental, theologically judgmental church. Skip decided to start his own church. Didn't want to build a building, didn't want to spend the money, well Skip owned a private airstrip. He had a couple of hangars where he kept his planes. He turned one of the hangars into a sanctuary went out and bought about 400 plastic chairs, you know those cheap plastic chairs, filled it there, put together a beautiful little communion table at the front, and on beautiful Sundays, in fact this happened the Sunday that I preached there as their theologian in residence, he would open up the, the hangar doors behind the, the chancel, behind the little, the little stand for that they would call the pulpit and their table, and you've got this unbelievable view. Was, I was there in, a, in June, it was about 70 degrees, no humidity, the Cascade Mountains out here, it kind of looked just like heaven. Anyway, on that first day, I was going to be there to preach every night that week. On that first day, that Sunday morning, I preached a sermon on John 3.16. And one of the things I said to the congregation was, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And there were stories in other parts of the sermon, but that was the heart of what I wanted them to hear. At the end, I didn't know this was going to happen, but the, the, the one who was uh, the pastor of the church she came up to the table, and she gave an altar call. I, I couldn't believe it. Skip didn't tell me that they did altar calls. I hadn't been in an altar call since I was a, in a college student. What, what's going to happen? How can they give an altar call based on my preaching? I'm this crazy liberal guy from California. What uh, An altar call? What is this about? But she was so sweet in the way she gave it. She said, you heard Pastor Glenn this morning. Preach on love. Is there anyone here this morning who wants more love in their life? Is there anyone here who is maybe even desperate for love? I, I wish you could have seen that congregation. Every one of those plastic chairs was filled. There had to be 400 people there. And every walk of life there were addicts and alcoholics, there were young mothers and, and old retired businessmen. You, you know, you, there was a couple of guys there who looked like they just rode in with the Hell's Angels, all leather. One of them had a, a knife strapped to his thigh. A tough crowd, a fun crowd. I wondered who would come if anyone would. And all of a sudden, one of those young moms, maybe 35, nicely dressed, came walking down the center aisle. The pastor turned to the little band that they had for for their music and said, let's sing Amazing Grace. They sang two verses of Amazing Grace and, and then he announced to the congregation after they'd sung the song that she wants to be baptized. Now I thought in my mind, She wants to be baptized. Well, that's nice. They'll plan a little baptismal service and and do that maybe in the next week or two. No, 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 no. It's called Riverside Church because there's a river by their side. (laughs) It's just down the hill about 250 yards. And we entire, the entire congregation, we put the potluck supper on hold and all of us walked down to the river and that preacher, she just waded right into the water Water up to her waist. And the woman who was being baptized waited out with her. They didn't change clothes. They didn't put on baptismal robes. They just walked into the water. And she said, in the name of love, I now baptize you. I baptize you in the name of love. I got to tell you, standing on that riverbank, part of me was glad. It wasn't me. I, I, I don't want to get wet with the nice suit that I'm wearing. I don't want to ruin these shoes. But part of me wished I could be the next one. I've been baptized, I've confessed my faith in Jesus many times, but part of me in that moment wanted the courage of love, wanted the, the reaffirmation that God's love is real for me, part of me just wanted to walk down there too. You know, Nicodemus first meets Jesus at night, and hears a word of love and grace, of full inclusion. For God so loved. You know, later, the next time we see him, Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. But it's Nicodemus, the one who came in fear in the middle of the night, who comes and gathers up the body of his Lord. Nicodemus has spices and ointments in which to bless him, the one who loved him so. He was transformed from fear to faith. Is your heart breaking? Is your dream of love fading? The promise of God is that God's love is already in you. Let that love be real, even now. Amen.